Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the Rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. We are going to return to Ephesians. It's been a long haul, but we're getting there, even if it's only step by step. The picture you see up here is actually a picture of a sandal, or what we could call an ancient boot, army boot. Wouldn't pass now, but an ancient army boot uh, of a Roman soldier. It's kept in a museum. Uh, it was found and now kept and restored, kept in a museum, and it actually was very sandal-like. You laced up the, um, as you can see, you laced up the leather. And it also, it's not, it doesn't have it here, but it also has laces that go up the calf on your leg to hold it tight. And so as we look back 2,000 years to this time when the book, this letter to the Ephesians was written, Many people simply look back 2,000 years and think that the whole, the whole deal, the whole Megillah of Ephesians was written from this Greek-speaking guy named Paul. Yes, he was Greek-speaking, but he was also Hebrew-speaking, and his foundation for his thought process and his theology and his understanding of who God is was all based in Torah and in the Judaism of that day. In fact, he was one of the star students of Gamliel, who was the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. And so Rav Shaul, had he not come to Yeshua by faith, may have been counted even in the Talmud among the great sages of our people. I think here at Bruch Hashem, we can do that. We can give Rav Shaul, I believe, the honor that is due him as one of the great sages of our fathers in Judaism. He came to an understanding when he saw a vision of Yeshua, and Yeshua spoke to him on the road to Damascus and said, Rav Shaul, you are being called to be the light or a witness of my grace to the Gentile world. It was already astounding enough for Rav Shaul to see Yeshua and understand and realize that he is the true Messiah. He had been persecuting Yeshua's Jewish followers for a long period of time. He was the greatest anti-missionary of his day. And now he's stopped on his horse, thrown down on the road to Damascus, and he has a vision of Yeshua, and he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Why are you persecuting me? After he gets over that shock, and he's blinded, by the way, the Lord reveals to him how much he will have to suffer 
to take the good news of Yeshua to the Gentile nations, to the people of the nations. Here's a an Orthodox rabbi who is now being asked to go among the Gentiles to share the good news of Yeshua. An astonishing revelation. And he shares some of that with the Ephesians in this letter. Today, we're going to look at the latest in footwear. How do you like it? Let's just read this passage once again. We're winding up the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 6. We've been in chapter 6 for a while. But I believe that we are coming to a climax. We've come to the climax of the book. And it's very important that we take enough time to understand what Rav Shaul has not only said previously, but what he is saying now because of the, of the level of spiritual warfare that we encounter due to the wonderful revelation of Yeshua as our Messiah. In verse 10 he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil or the adversary. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm then. Having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet, with the preparation or the readiness of the good news of shalom or the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to put out, extinguish all the flaming missiles, the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. He mentioned seven pieces of armor for the warfare. And we are on the third. We talked about truth. We talked about righteousness. Today we're going to talk about not only the good news of shalom, but being ready or prepared with the good news. So the latest in footwear is the good news of shalom designed just for your feet. One size fits all. We're again, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. I'll read it again. This is from the Jewish New Testament. 
Therefore stand, have the belt of truth buckled around your waist, put on righteousness for a breastplate, and wear on your feet the readiness that comes from the good news of Shalom. Readiness for what? Well, in the midst of this context, readiness for battle, certainly. Readiness to fight the schemes of the adversary. Why, what is he trying to do? He would love nothing better than to rob us of the good news of shalom, to rob us of the peace of the shalom outright out of our lives that comes from the good news. So he says, be prepared. Put on those shoes, put on those sandals. Wear it on your feet. First, let's say it with flowers. I don't want all this warfare to think that you always have to be, you know, ready to stab somebody with the word of the Lord. Let's say it with flowers. Moshe was passing by a florist when he saw a sign in the window which read, Say it with flowers. He went into the shop and said to the assistant, Wrap up one rose for me. Only one? the assistant asked. Just one, replied Moshe. I'm a man of few words. Well, you know, during some holiday or birthday or some time you want to remember your wife or your girlfriend, you could do it with, um, you could be a man of few words or you could be a man of many words. Uh, you know, you might want to decide on that. Determ make that determination on what your wife feels you should be. A man of few words that come out of your lips, but a man of many words that come with roses. Well, proclaiming the good news, you can do that with few words or many words. But the original proclamation, my friends, was intended for B'nai Israel, for the sons of Israel. And it was intended to be proclaimed by a faithful Jewish remnant. That's one of the things that we are looking at in terms of the book of Ephesians. The, 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 the whole series is called Ephesians from a Jewish Perspective, particularly from this man's Jewish perspective. And so as we look at the book of Ephesians from a Jewish perspective, you must understand that the good news of Shalom was first intended to go to Israel. Who else was waiting for the good news? Who else? None of the nations were waiting for the good news. The nations were idolaters. They were all idolatrous nations. The only nation on the face of the earth that was waiting for the good news, for the Mashiach, was Israel. And so the original intent and the original proclamation of this good news was intended for Israel for the sons of Israel, and it would be proclaimed by other sons of Israel, the faithful remnant, to the rest of the people. That was the design. Not the design of the New Testament. That was the design of God through the prophets to Israel. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. We sang this song today. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. 
Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem. Bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. This was written long before Yeshua was born. This was the intention of God. There would be a remnant of Israel who were faithful, declaring to the greater part of the nation who were yet to be faithful. Yes, they were all Israel in the nation, but not all of Israel was faithful to God. Would you agree? You can, you can read that through the entire Tanakh. The reason that God sent the prophets to Israel is to restore the unfaithful to come back and be faithful to him. So there's some good news, and it's wonderful to hear good news. If I were to put this, if I were to translate this into your, into, not your, but into New Testament translation, it would read something like, get yourself up on a high mountain, church. Don't people say that? Bearer of the gospel. Lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, the remnant of the church. Bearer of the gospel. Lift it up and do not fear. And say to your neighbors and all those taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, say, here is your God, Yeshua, or Jesus, if I'm saying New Testament translation. To me, that is a wrong translation. It's applicable to bring the gospel, the good news of Yeshua, to the nations, to the people who are not Jewish. But that's not the proper translation or understanding. The good news was to be proclaimed first to Israel. God had to be faithful to his own word by the sons of Israel. And indeed, that's exactly what happened as we read the Gospels and even the Birchadashah. So we want to proclaim the good news. What is the good news? Basar, which means to proclaim good news, is the word used by Isaiah. In fact, he even talks about not only to proclaim the good news, but he talks about the messenger, Mevaseret Zion, the messenger of Zion, which is a derivative of Basar. To proclaim the good news. You can read these in 1 Kings one forty-two. Or Isaiah, chapter 52, 7, which we'll read in just a moment. And you can see that the anticipated proclamation is full of joy, hope, victory, and peace. You know, in the old days, you didn't just, you know, pick up a newspaper, turn on the internet, or a radio, or a TV to hear news. And by the way, if you do that, you're only going to hear bad news, at least mostly. But news came by mouth 
news came by foot. In fact, most people had runners. You remember King David had runners. When he was in battle or when his army was fighting, somebody would be sent. And we sent on foot to run as fast as they could to bring King David the news. Hopefully it was good news. We get the word marathon from this very, um, this very proclamation. Marathon comes from the old Greek legend that the Greeks were fighting the Persians in a city called Marathon. They defeated the Persians. And one of the men was sent as a runner who ran 26 miles and so many feet. Somebody else knows. Over 26 miles. And the guy ran the whole 26 miles. And he burst into the um, Senate and said, We have won. And then he dropped dead. That's the story. But that's where we get the whole marathon idea. Now people have to practice for the marathon rather than just trying to run it without practicing so they don't drop dead. But it was all to bring the good news of the victory of Greece over Persia. Speaking about Greece, euangelion is Greek for the good news or the good message, if you will. Or what is translated in most of your Bibles, if you're reading a regular English translation, the gospel. It is used for the word basar. And the one who is tasked to bring the good news ran to deliver the message. He didn't just walk and it wasn't just a casual thing. He had a message to deliver and he put all of his strength into it to deliver it. So Rav Shaul is saying, put on your feet the good news of Shalom. We have victory. God has brought us peace. Start running to deliver the message. He goes on to say, I am not ashamed. To bring bad news was a daunting task that was feared by most messengers. Why? Because if you brought bad news to the king, he was likely to just lop your head off because he didn't like the news. You know, the old, the old adage, look, don't, I'm just the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. You know, if you don't like the message, I'm just the messenger. The kings didn't care. The king didn't like the bad news. He took off your head. Many times the messengers were killed bringing bad news. Sometimes we as Messianic Jews feel ashamed because we are always the target of shame from the various communities of faith. So sometimes we are we become ashamed to bring the good news of Yeshua to our people Israel, to our people, the Jewish people. Because we have this kind of veil of this, this weight of shame. Well, I, I really believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, but I'm afraid, I'm kind of ashamed to go back into the Jewish community. Well, if we 
are bearers of the ultimate good news, then we need to proclaim it. If we believe it, if we trust the Lord, if Yeshua is the Messiah, then we need to, and we are the bearers of the ultimate good news, we need to proclaim it without shame. Rav Shaul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting to the faithful, to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. Your translations may be a little different than that. That's from the Jewish New Testament. I'm not ashamed of the good news. In fact, many Messianic Jews suffer because of the good news from, our, from by the hands of our own people. I have experienced it. Many of you have. But let me tell you, I am not ashamed of the gospel, but nor am I ashamed of my people, or um, will I ever turn my back on the Jewish community. Yeshua did not. Rav Shaul did not. None of the shlichim ever turned their backs on the Jewish community, even though the message was not often received with great delight. It was received with great delight many times, but many times not. Well, this good news is good news of peace. It's good news of shalom. Look what Isaiah the prophet writes in 52, chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Proclaiming shalom. Bringing good news. Vaser. Bringing good news of good things. Announcing salvation. Yeshua. And saying to Zion... Your God is king. All right, now we got some beautiful feet. We got some people who are bearing the good news. You know, those sandals that I showed you at the beginning were 2,000 years old. They weren't so beautiful. But in the day when they were prime, they were beautiful to the people who wore them. And also to those who are waiting at home to hear the good news of their victory. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Proclaiming peace. Shalom. Bringing good news of good things. Announcing salvation. And you know, in Hebrew, salvation or deliverance is the, is the word Yeshua. Now you'll see here, it is here in feminine form. It has a hey on the end, which designates it as a feminine form. Yeshua's name is the same as this word, Yeshua, without the hey. Yeshua. Announcing salvation. Would you permit me to just say, announcing Yeshua. And saying this to Zion, your God is king. 
This is the good news. Will Israel ever have a king? Uh, Prime minister, president, you know, a cabinet. We have all these funny elections over there with different parties vying for power. Will we ever have a king? God is our king. God has always been our king. And Yeshua is the king of kings. This is the proclamation of good news. This is what Israel is waiting for. What kind of peace are we looking for? We're looking for peace with Hashem, peace with God. We want peace with God. We want peace with men, with other people, with other human beings. I can't stand it. I'm telling you, I can't stand it when I'm in conflict with God and I'm struggling and I'm not, I'm not right with the Lord. It's really, it bothers me so much. And secondly, it, it, I, it's hard for me to sleep at night when I'm in conflict with other people. When I'm struggling with other people. It messes up my whole day. After that, I get over it. No. <laughs> no, you've got to make it right. We're looking for peace with ourselves, my friends. How many of us remain silent? We never let anyone know about the struggle that's going on within our own heart, within our own soul, within our own mind. The struggles that we deal with day in and day out. You know what those are in your own life. We need shalom. We need the peace of the Messiah that will rule and reign in our hearts. We need the peace that passes understanding. We can't figure it out. We need the peace that passes that kind of understanding that we can't figure out. It's an amazing story, isn't it? The peace that comes in Yeshua. The amazing story we find back in Luke chapter 2. I just want to read a couple of verses, verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, along with the angel was a vast army from heaven praising God. And they said, In the highest heaven, glory to God. And on earth, peace, shalom, among people of goodwill. Those of us who are Jewish or Jewish-minded people, uh, you know, we, we, all, we, we almost reject this out of hand because it's such a common phrase on Christmas cards, etc., etc. And we feel like it's not very Jewish. But let me tell you, friends, this is exactly what the prophets declared. Here are some Jewish shepherds, probably shepherding the sheep that were waiting to be offered in the temple. Here are some Jewish shepherds in the field, and an angel appears and declares to them some good news. And all of a sudden, around the angel comes probably tens of thousands of other angels, and they all began to well up with this wonderful thing that's happened. And they begin to praise God. All of them, thousands and tens of thousands of them, they just begin to praise God. And the shepherds are hearing it and they're listening and they're, and they're, and they're hearing, in the highest heaven where God's throne is. Glory to God. Glory to Hashem. And on earth, peace 
among people of goodwill, the good news of Shalom. This announcement was so amazing to the shepherds, they had to leave the sheep and go to Beit Lechem to find out what is going on. It was amazing. So here they find that Adonai is the Lord. Listen to Luke chapter 2, verse 15. No sooner had the angels left them and gone back into heaven than the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, and see this thing that has happened that Adonai, in Greek kurios, has told us about. Let's see what's happened and the thing that Adonai has told us about. Well, the angels appeared. The voice of the Lord came, and they told, and, and the voice of God said to the shepherds, what happened? Let's see what's happened. Well, the word Adonai here, which is kurios, which obviously is a Greek form of expression to designate yud heh vav Yahweh, Jehovah, however you'd like to say it, Hashem, Adonai, Let's see what Adonai has told us about. In the Septuagint, many of you know what the Septuagint is, some of you don't, but the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Tanakh, written by 70 rabbis, that's why it's called Septuagint, written by 70 rabbis, and it's, a, it's just a translation from Hebrew into Greek. Because Greek was the common language of the day. It's not the New Testament, it's the Tanakh. In the Tanakh, over 6,000 times, the word kurios is used for yud heh vav heh, for the name of the living Lord, the living God. Over 6,000 times. And so we, have, we bear witness to it here in Luke chapter 2, verse 15. So what's the big deal? Adonai is the Lord. We all knew that. Adonai is the Lord. This is the big deal. This is where it happened in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. This very day, in the town of David, there was born for you. This is the original message. This very day, in the town of David, there was born for you a deliverer, a savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Curious. This is the context of this whole story. The Lord told us about this. And here today is the Deliverer who is the Messiah, the Lord. How can all this be? My friends, it's a mystery to this day. But for one, I cannot restrict God. I can't, I, I, I've tried to put God in a box, and every time I do, and I open the box, he's gone. Somehow I cannot contain him in a box. And so some of the mysteries of Scripture, some of the mysteries of life, some of the spiritual mysteries that we find in the Scripture, we accept by faith because we don't understand all of it. One of these days we will. 
Somehow we know that God remained in existence throughout eternity. He was still in the heavens, and yet here he was born in a manger, in a, in a, in a little cavern, as a baby, as a child. Is this just sort of Christmas stuff? No. This is prophetic truth. This is prophetic truth. How could a baby be the Lord? How could it happen? How could it be? How can we understand it? Well, we may not be able to understand it. But Isaiah prophesied it by the Spirit of God in chapter 9, verse 6. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. Dominion will rest on his shoulders. And he will be given the name Peleoetz. El Gibor, Avi Ad, Sar Shalom, which means wonder of a counselor or a wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, and prince of peace. How can all that be balled up into one little baby? I don't know, but it was. He goes on to say in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of Adonai Tzva'ot will accomplish this. We don't accomplish it. We're not making up theology. The Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And he has. And it's a continuing story, my friends. It's not over. Now, we're being called to be ready, to be prepared. We're supposed to put on our feet this new stylish design for our feet. It's called the good news of shalom. Let's put it on our feet. We have to be ready. We have to be prepared. Ephesians 6.15 again. And wear on your feet the readiness that comes from the good news of Shalom. In the old days, I understand that cowboys used to sleep with their boots on. That may or may not be true. I don't know. Just what I heard. Cowboys used to sleep with their boots on. Why? Because in the Wild West... You never knew what was going to happen, and you had to be ready. What if they were caught with their pants down and no shoes on? You had to be ready. Be prepared. Here's a new scenario. In Matthew 24:44, Yeshua says... Therefore, you too must always be ready, for the Son of Man will come when you are not expecting Him. What about this, this side of being ready? We, we already looked at kind of being ready for warfare, but what about being ready for the coming of the Messiah? Are we ready for that? Be ready, He says. He's coming when you don't expect Him. Wait a minute. If I'm ready, I should know kind of when he's coming. 
I guess we kind of know when he's kind of coming. But we better be ready because he's coming when we don't expect him. Do you hear that? We're coming when we least expect him. Anyone who claims to be the Messiah today or is proclaimed to be the Messiah is a false Messiah. Do you hear what I just said? You need to get that in your heart. Anyone proclaimed to be the Messiah or who claims to be the Messiah today is a false Messiah. He's coming when we don't expect him and he will come like glory, like the lightning flashes from the east to the west. <laughs> we must be ready. We must be prepared. Someone once said, preparation often beats determination. Many of you just got through finals week. How many of you were determined to get through your courses and you were determined to do good on your finals, but you didn't prepare for them? One honest man over here. You need determination. That's not bad. But preparation is vital. You can be determined and you can reach the end of your goal and you can flunk right out of the whole thing. You need to be prepared. We need to be ready. What about Pesach preparations? How many of us prepare for Pesach? Man, it takes like... A, it takes at least a week, doesn't it, to prepare for Pesach? You've got you to clean out the house. You've got to buy the food. You've got to prepare everything. You know, I mean, you prepare your guest list probably way ahead of that. And it can get pretty hairy sometimes. But you prepare for Pesach. Well, we read in the book of Exodus about Pesach preparations in Exodus chapter 12. God said, prepare a lamb. Get a lamb. You bring it in four days before you kill it. You bring it in on the 10th day of Nisan and you kill it on the 14th. You let its blood just ooze out of the, uh, you know, of the cut open juggler vein. The slit juggler. You let the blood pour into a bowl. You put the bowl, you put the blood on your door, on your doorpost and on your lintel. And you've prepared a big meal. Look, it doesn't matter if we're in trouble, Jews eat. On the day of deliverance, Jews are told to prepare a big meal. They had to be ready. Prepare a big meal. Look, you don't want to go into the desert hungry. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, here's how you are to eat. With your belt fastened, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat in a hurry. Be ready. Why? Because you don't know when the Pharaoh is going to call Moses and say, get out of here. And it's time for your deliverance. And the deliverer will say, go, blow a shofar and say, follow me. And you've got to be ready. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 31 
Pharaoh did summon Moshe finally after the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague. And you know when? He has summoned him by night. This is a little clue, friends. He summoned him by night. When Yeshua gave the parable of the ten virgins, the bridegroom came by night. This is a little clue for us. Yeshua will come when we don't expect him. Be ready. Have oil in your lamps. Be ready. Have your feet shod with the gospel, the good news of Shalom. Pharaoh called to him by night and said, Get up, leave, and go. He gave Moshe three directives. Up, leave, go. If you believe in something called a rapture, we're going to hear a shofar one of these days, and it's going to say, Shoah can do it better than I can. And that is going to be our signal to go up, to leave, to go. We better be ready. Can you believe this is coming from Pharaoh's mouth? Up, leave, and go. Serve Adonai, your God, as you said. The enemy one of these days will let go. In the meantime, we better be ready. We're going up, and we're going to serve our God forever. This is the scout motto. How many of you are scouts? Yeah, a number of you. I was never a scout. You know why? My parents thought it was a Christian organization. And I was not allowed to join. I had to join something called the Woodcraft Rangers. It was also fun. A lot more Jewish kids. But the scout motto is be prepared. Be prepared. What does it mean? It means you are always in a state of readiness in mind and in body to do your duty. To do what you're supposed to do. So why be armed with readiness? What's the big deal? Why be armed with readiness? In First Kepha, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Stay sober, stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, the devil, stalks about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. My friends, if we're not ready, we'll get blindsided by the adversary. He will blindside us. He will rob us of our joy, the joy that comes with the peace of the Messiah. We will. We need to be ready. It's part of the armor that God has given to us in to fight the good fight. So today, the good news of Shalom is in Yeshua is still alive. It's still vibrant, and it is still compelling. Isn't it? It's still compelling. So armed with the readiness doesn't, is not just a defensive tool. It's an offensive tool. 
We're armed with readiness so that we can advance the kingdom of God. You know what happens when we advance the kingdom of God? The kingdom of darkness retreats. When the kingdom of light advances, the kingdom of darkness retreats. It can't, it doesn't have any choice. It, it can't help it. When someone came in here in the morning and turned all the lights on, you know what happened? The darkness retreated. The same thing happens when the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven advances through us. I'm not speaking about kingdom theology where you go around and you kill everybody unless they convert. So that we can see the kingdom of God on earth by our own making. No, not at all. But we are armed with the good news of Yeshua and we need to go forward with it unashamed. I showed you a soldier's sandal, but I told you that the armor can also be likened to the priests, to the Kohanim, who served in the temple. By the way, I've mentioned this many times, but when I say priest, I'm not talking about a Catholic priest. I'm talking about a Kohen, Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his descendants, who served the Lord in the temple and once a year went to the Holy of Holies. A Roman soldier was always prepared to march when given the orders or fight, having his sandals already bound to his feet. He was ready. You know, the Roman army used to fight side to side. That was one of the reasons they were invincible or almost invincible. They would fight side to side. They had these incredible shields. They protected each other. They were only armed on the front, by the way. They were not armed on the back. Their backs were open, armed on the front, and they always had these sandals, these boots that I showed you at the beginning, so that they would not be distracted when they walked on the dirt or on the fields or wherever. Their feet were protected, and they wouldn't be distracted, and they were focused on their job. That sort of describes how we're supposed to be. So this soldier, this Roman soldier, was confident in his feet and not distracted by harmful rocks and debris like we shouldn't be, those things that come against us. But a priest, on the other hand, a Kohen, on the other hand, always removed his sandals in preparation to minister to the Almighty. Why? Because it's holy ground. My friends, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. When we come before the Lord and we are ministering to the Lord and He's ministering to us, we are on holy ground. And as a side note, let me just say that when we're with each other and we are brothers and sisters in Yeshua, we need to remove the sandals from our feet because we're on holy ground. Yeshua in us, Yeshua in us is the presence of God's holiness. We need to be very careful how we treat one another. We need to treat one another with holiness and with dignity and with delicacy. So here's the good news. The good news is found, it should be in a person. The good news is found in a person which, who is Yeshua, not just in a message. 
You need to remember that, friends. The good news is alive and well, found in the person of Yeshua, not just in a message. We don't need to just argue our theology all the time. We're not going to argue Yeshua. The good news is also found in a message, but is in a person. And the salvation he provides is a gift. The good news assumes activity and confidence. We need to be both active and confident in the good news that's on our feet. Confidence in the one who has atoned for our sin and who has liberated us from the slave market of sin, from the kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of his light, of his son. We need to move with confidence, without distractions. So that's why we, sh- we put our, on our feet the latest style of shoes. The, not the latest, the greatest style of shoes. The good news of Shalom in Yeshua. We also need to be active. The good news is activity. And walking out the very message of forgiveness and liberty in Him that God has put in us. Don't stop it up. You know, the message and the person is alive. It's effervescent. It's alive. When we put a cork in the, in the, in the message, either by our words or by our deeds, we are doing the very opposite thing that God has asked us to do. The good news is active. And we're to walk in it. In the context of the book of Ephesians and in the context of God uh, delivering his good news, the good news is both for Jews and for Gentiles. And in the context of Ephesians, it brings peace, shalom, the good news of shalom, that both groups will come together in his peace under the blood of Yeshua. My friends, that's the context of Ephesians. It's not just some general kind of peace, although it is that too. As I mentioned before, peace with God, peace with others, peace with yourself. But there's a very specific context of peace between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Messiah. And that's good news, not bad news. So friends, don't get robbed. Don't get robbed. The enemy will use any means he possibly can to rob you, rob us of our peace in Yeshua. We need to be ready. First Kepha, First Peter 5.9 says, Stand against him, firm in your trust, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same kinds of suffering. We haven't suffered much yet. What little we have suffered, you just need to know. Brothers and sisters around the world, including in Israel, have suffered the same kinds of things, and I would say many of them to much greater degrees, and continued to stand firm. Whenever we start feeling sorry for ourselves, consider the others, the other followers of Yeshua, both Jews and Gentiles, who are deeply persecuted for their faith. That's what Marley and I used to do when Ministry just got so hard and so difficult, and we got so discouraged, we would pick up a book about um, those who suffered for Yeshua's sake. And we, we would be so encouraged by it, not because, you know, oh, I'm so encouraged that they're suffering, 
No. We would be so encouraged that they stood firm in their suffering, and we haven't even hardly come close to it. No need to barricade yourself, my friends, in your homes or in yourself. Don't put a guard around yourself against the enemy in that sense. No need to barricade yourself in, but be armed with the good news and fight. Be armed with the good news of shalom and fight. So how about it? Let's, let's all, if we haven't already done it, let's pick up the latest fashion in footwear. The latest fashion, everyone in the kingdom of God is wearing this. You'll be left out if you're not wearing the latest fashion of footwear in the kingdom of God. So bind your feet with the readiness that's in the good news of Shalom in Yeshua. Will you do that? Bind your feet with the readiness of the good news of Shalom. Be careful in First Kepha we read 5.10 again. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Yeshua said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So my friends, be prepared, be ready, wear the latest fashion. I'm sorry, that shouldn't be First Peter, that should be uh, actually first, that should be John chapter 10. That was a wrong reference. Excuse me. So stand firm on the good news, on the rock of our salvation, on Yeshua, the Messiah, who is the hope of Israel. I am not ashamed of the good news of Shalom, because it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. Yeshua is the Messiah, who is the hope of Israel. Adunenu, we just thank you and bless you for the good news of Shalom. We pray that you would help us with our own feebleness and as we fumble around to really put on our feet the good news of Shalom that we find in Yeshua, our Messiah. Thank you, Lord. We bless you for arming us and for teaching us how to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. B'Shem Yeshua and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. The road that you are on in this room Many of you have been walking down this road for some time. Some of you have just started this road. It is a road that is not the easiest road, but I can tell you that it is a road that's the most worthwhile. See, any dead fish can swim downstream. It takes somebody full of life to move forward. It's not a road for wimps. Yeah, it's cost us. Probably cost us a little bit more, Deborah. So what? In light of eternity, what does it matter? Think about it. When we stand before Him, we will be by ourselves, Henry. Be one-on-one in that day. It won't really matter what man said. It'll only matter what he said. I want to make a couple of comments before I start into uh message. 
Steve put on a song to start with, a, um, a song I've heard before, a scripture that I've preached many times, but one that we had better stop and think about that scripture before we accept it as our own, because most of us in this room would understand spirit. Hallelujah, praise God, jumping up and down, swinging from the chandeliers. We call that spirit. Well, maybe it is. Some emotion in there and having a good time, because I think that our journey from here to eternity should be full of good times. We should be people of joy. But if we will allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we must understand that Scripture says in the book of Psalm that the truth is Torah. Now, when I talk about Torah, and I'll be trying to explain a few things as I go through today, when I talk about Torah, I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which should be our foundation. The 613 commands that are given were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I've got many teachings on that. I don't have time to get into that whole subject today. But understand this. The Torah has not been done away with. And if you're, if you're following a Messiah who teaches against Torah, you're following the wrong Messiah. And so when he said to that lady in Samaria, the Father is looking for a group of people who would worship in spirit and truth. He was saying, yes, you need to have the wonderful times of exuberance and the joy and all of the things that come along with that. But when you come back down to earth, you better be walking Torah. For if you're not, you're not walking out what the Father asked you to walk out. That's the life and obedience to His Word. So that's where I come from. That I believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and I desire to follow it from Genesis to Maps. You say, how do you follow it to Maps? It's pretty easy. Next Tuesday I'll be getting on a plane, God willing, Bezrat Hashem, and going to Israel. Looking forward to a great time. So that's how you follow it from Genesis to Maps. But see, when I look at Scripture, I have a foundation. My foundation did not start with the words of Paul or the revelation to John. My foundation started on Mount Sinai, a revelation given to Moses in his commands. And I look at the rest of Scripture through those eyes. And I found out that when I do, the Scripture makes a lot more sense. And we don't have the contradictions we once thought we did. So, that is a challenge to you. I want to go back 2,000 years to a hillside. A hillside that I've stood on many, many times, and I enjoy it, and I sit there and I look across the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount is that big thing, those two big things, the mosque and the dome. And one day they're coming down. I've got many friends that would love to go over and help in that. (laughs) But so far they're there. And I've stood there and considered over and over again what it must have been like to be the disciples. I love to read the Scripture and put myself in there. I believe we see much more when we do that. And to consider this group of men and women that are gathered on the Mount of Olives, they've walked with Yeshua now for three and a half years. They've witnessed His execution. They've seen that now He is resurrected. They've walked with Him for 40 days. Much has been expounded to them. They've been expounding Torah during that time. They've been trying to grasp all that they could grasp. And they find themselves in a very in a place that they're very familiar with. They've been to many times. Probably a favorite place of Yeshua. And 
It's there that he sits them down. They don't know what is about to happen. Consider this setting, if you were there, and consider that you have one question that you can ask it. What would it be? Just as important as what the question would be is, what would that question be based upon? See, we need to understand what the question would be based upon in order to understand the question. Because what we would base our question on would be what we had been taught as we were brought up. It would have been based upon doctrines of the day. It would have been based upon our family and the specific customs of that time. It would have been based upon traditions. That question would even be based upon our own personalities. Much of the question would be based upon what we had been taught along the way. And we find these disciples in that. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they ask a question of Yeshua. A question that has been used, unfortunately, by many people to once again beat up on these stupid people. These stupid disciples. They've walked with Yeshua for three and a half years, and they've seen all this stuff, and they still don't get it. They don't have a clue, yada, yada. Folks, I think that we need to lay off some of these people in Scripture, don't you? You know, we need to be walking in a little bit more humility toward them because these are not ignorant people. I would imagine that probably, if it was allowed, there would be a slap line in the kingdom. You know? As you're walking in, there's different ones that, you know, here's Peter. How dare you talk about me getting out of that boat one more time? Smack, you know. I'm the only one that got out. Things like that. But uh, these people knew more than we'd given them credit for. And they ask a very important question, and they ask it based upon what they had seen and what they had been taught. And the question is this, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, When they were gathered, they asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore self-rule to Israel? He answered, You don't need to know the dates or the times the Father has kept under His authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim, in Yehuda, in Shamron, indeed to the ends of the earth. Folks, this is not a bad question. What Yeshua says, you ask a good question based upon your teaching, but let me redirect you away from the question because it is not up to you to know that answer at this moment. This is what you are to do. I'm going to give you power, and you're going to go out and do some things, and you're going to do this prior to me answering the question. Well, what is this question? What is it that is here? The disciples say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Are you at this time going to tear down the Roman Empire and allow Israel to once again be the united kingdom that it was at the time of David? Why would they ask a question like this? They would ask it because of a specific teaching of that day. A teaching that goes back prior to the time of Yeshua and a teaching that is alive and well and I'm going to show you some things and show you just how alive it is today. A teaching that said, out of the Torah and the Talmud, the Old Testament as people would call it, mistakenly, but that's what they'd call it, the teaching was that there would be two messiahs. There would be Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering servant, who would be followed by Messiah, son of David, the conquering king. And this would be two different men, two different messiahs. 
Well, what I'd like to do is take you through in a little while today and show you that really us in this room and most observant Jews, even in Israel today, have the same basic theology. The only difference is we believe it's the same person. And if we will understand that, we will understand the question the disciples were posing that day. What were they saying? We have seen you. They were looking at Yeshua saying, we have seen through your death, burial, and resurrection, through the things that you have suffered, we have seen that you have fulfilled the prophecies of Messiah, son of Joseph, and we just figure now that you're resurrected, you are also Messiah, son of David. Whoops, the rabbis had it wrong. Not two people, it's one person standing in front of us right now. Is this the moment that you're going to reveal yourself as Messiah, son of David? And he said, don't worry about that at the moment. You've got a job to do. That's how we translate those scriptures. Well, why should we need to know this today? Why should we need to be able to understand this today? Because, you know, if you go to your Jewish friends and you say to them, Messiah has come. And they say, no, he hasn't. You say, yes, he has. And they say, no, he hasn't. Yes, he has. No, he hasn't. Yes, he has. And after you finish that few-word argument, both of you are frustrated, and they walk off, and you're going, well, I guess I'm just, you know, they're just stiff-necked and hard-hearted. But see, that has nothing to do, they're not, it's not they're stiff-necked and hard-hearted, it's that they are not communicating at the same place that you are. And if we need, if we're going to understand how to witness to somebody, we had better speak the same language. And when I was in Belgium, I had two interpreters at one time because I didn't speak Flemish or French. So I'd say something. My interpreter on the right side would translate it into Flemish. The one on the left side would translate it into French. And if I remembered what I was, had said, I would keep going. <laughs> but I understand that we need to speak the same language. And see, a Jewish person says, after you say Messiah has come, they say, no, he hasn't. And you say, but yes, he has. And they say, no, according to the prophets, when Messiah comes, there will be world peace. There will be a one world religion. There will be a one world government. There will be a temple in Jerusalem. And Messiah will be seated on that throne in Jerusalem. And there will go forth from there the Torah. They will no longer even learn about war. In fact, they'll take what they were using for war and beat those implements into farming implements. And they say to you, we don't have world peace today, do we? No. There's no temple. No. There's no one seated there. No. And they say, see, Messiah has not come. And you walk away going, I does that. Because you have no idea. Because they're right. But see, when we can say, I believe that Messiah, son of Joseph, has come, and that he will return as Messiah, son of David, you know what they say? How do you know that? How do you know that teaching? I've had this happen over and over again. How do you know that teaching? It's in your books. Don't you read your own books? Well, yes, but we didn't know that you knew it. To give you an example, I was in Jerusalem a number of years ago. I was sitting at the... Uh, menorah cafe just before Shabbat with a messianic leader that most of you would know and we were talking about this whole concept of Messiah son of Joseph and up walks a good friend of mine who is an orthodox Jew he's not a believer in Messiah as far as Yeshua being Messiah and he got in on the conversation and we kept talking about this and we said you know 
Isn't it interesting, all of these prophecies about Messiah, son of Joseph, were fulfilled in the person of Yeshua. I mean, I just believe that Yeshua is Messiah, son of Joseph, and would return as Messiah, son of David. And this this Orthodox Jew said, I can see how that would be. Do you know how big that is? This is major stuff here, folks. Because see, what had I done in that, in that time frame is I had broken down a wall and built a bridge. And that is what we are called to do as ministers of reconciliation is tear down walls and build bridges. So we need to understand this because the questions are being posed today and there needs to be somebody out there with some answers. Right, let me tell you how much this is being talked about. I'll read you a couple of quotes off of a couple of chat rooms that I picked up off the internet. These are Jewish chat rooms, okay? These are not believers in Messiah, Yeshua. These are Jewish, and in fact, one of them is a Jewish teen site. The first one said this, and this was posted in 2003. Yes, I have heard the tradition that Messiah, son of Joseph, would immediately precede Messiah, son of David. But there are others. In one writing, it says that Messiah would be revealed, then hidden, then revealed again. Some rabbis have said... He would be hidden for one or two thousand years before being revealed again. Also, yes, there are some interpretations that Messiah, son of Joseph, would die, would fight and die immediately before Messiah, son of David. However, that is not the only interpretation. The origin of the name for Messiah, son of Joseph, is likening his sufferings to those of Joseph, the son of Jacob, in Egypt. He was innocent, and yet he was caused to suffer. But he was no fighter. And yes, Messiah, son of Joseph, was supposed to pave the way for Messiah, son of David. As some have said concerning the Messiah, if we were righteous, he'd come on a white horse. But if not, he'd come on a donkey. (laughs) So Messiah, son of Joseph, paves the way for Messiah, son of David, by making us worthy for Messiah, son of David. Now let me read you one from a team site. However, Messiah, son of Joseph's success by our standard of measurement is a limited one. Not only will he be, or perhaps already is, or even already was human, he will be humanly vulnerable. In fact, according to one opinion in the Talmud, Messiah, son of Joseph, will leave this world without being able to see the fruits of his labors, dying instead of the, in the great battle, prompting a great and difficult eulogy by the Jewish people. Yeshua, his death, is still a difficult eulogy for the Jewish people. The ingathering of the exiles and the return to the Holy Land in general, and in detail until the final redemption, is the role of the first Messiah, Messiah, son of Joseph. That's what's being talked about today, folks. And if we will understand these things, we will be able to become... The witness that Yeshua told us to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, even if that is Bend, Oregon. (laughs) We will be the witnesses that He has called us to be because we will be witnessing from truth. Truth that is based in Torah. We need to know these things because we need to know the days that we were living in. I love what Steve said. He said, I believe that we are in the last generation. I said that a couple of nights ago. I've said that many times. Hey, you know, we've got a generation today they're calling the great generation. 
May have been some great people that were in that generation. That's wonderful. Awesome. But if I've got the the ability to choose between the great generation and the last generation, I'm choosing the last one. Because see folks, if we're living in the last generation, we're always going to have something to talk about. We were there when everything was restored. We'll know the days we're living in. We'll also need know how to prepare for those days. And we better prepare. See, the rabbis have taught that if we only knew Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we would be able to know the end from the beginning. Understand, they said, if we knew all of the Torah. They were admitting they don't know it all. And we're in that same crowd. We don't know it all either. I believe even that if we understood the book of Genesis, we would be able to understand the beginning from the end. If you look at the book of Genesis, 50 chapters. And in this book, it is broken down into the first chapter or two is on the creation of the world. Right? I mean, pretty awesome event. And God only takes like a chapter, then repeats himself in the second chapter. The fall of man, that which will be spoken of hour after hour, probably a a verse that more sermons have come off of the one verse of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the prophecy of the coming Messiah. There's probably been more sermons preached from that verse than any other verse. Because any verse, any sermon regarding restoration and redemption ties back to that verse. So all of this has been done, all we talk about of this restoration goes back to just one or two verses. I mean, the fall of man, something we live with daily, few verses. Noah, <laughs> Noah gets a few chapters. The Tower of Babel gets a few verses. All of these different people, I mean, Abraham did pretty good. He got a few chapters. Isaac gets a few, Ishmael gets a little bit on the side. But have you ever noticed that some 25% from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50 is mainly regarding one man, and that's the man named Joseph. Now, if God took 25% of the Bible to talk to us about somebody, maybe there's something in there for us to know, don't you think? So we need to understand this person's life if we're to understand what we're doing today. So I'd like us to go to Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to go through a couple of verses here. And I I challenge you later on to uh, read through from Genesis 37 on and to do so with these kinds of thoughts. See, the standard teaching of the day, and this teaching about Messiah, son of Joseph, you can find this in various places. The first part of how I'm going to teach it is kind of widely known today. But it says that Joseph, as he was in Egypt, as he was even from his birth, in the time that he was taken to Egypt, all these things, is a prophetic picture of Yeshua. And it has been said over the years that we can see from Genesis chapter 37 that there are some 18 similarities between the life of Joseph in Egypt and the life of Yeshua. Well, I started looking at it. And I started in Genesis 37, I took a pen, and I started to mark down every one that I saw that were similarities. I got through 18 before I even finished Genesis 37. There are so many things that you will see about the similarities. Let me take you through a couple. Genesis chapter 37, verse 3 says this, Now Israel, the father, loved Joseph the most of all his children. See, we have even here, The Ancient of Days, the Father. 
as he loved his only begotten son. Joseph was special in the eyes of Israel. And it says, because he was the son of his old age, he made him a long-sleeved robe or a coat of many colors. Joseph was given a special garment. And we know, of course, that Yeshua had a sleeveless or a, a seamless robe. And that's what the soldiers were casting lots for. There's a similarity in the two. In verse 4, it says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they began to hate him and reached the point they couldn't even talk with him in a civil manner. Because of the love of the father toward this son, the brothers started to hate him. In fact, couldn't even speak to him civilly. When we open the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do we see? That the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of that day, they started to reject him. They started to hate him and even sought how to kill him. I mean, not being able to talk in a civil manner is one thing, but killing somebody, that's a whole nother extreme. We continue to see this in Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 through 8. Now, I'm not going to read those for sake of time. You can read them on your own. It says, The brothers did not believe who he was, nor did they believe the call that was on his life. Remember the dream? When he had the dream, when he had the visions, he said, you know, Joseph was maybe a little zealous in this. Maybe, you know, there's there's times that you have some good dreams. Not all of them should be shared. And this one cost him some things, you know. I mean, he said to his father and to his brothers, one day you guys are going to bow down to me. That's not the thing you say to people that don't like you. But it was going to come true. And the same thing happened to Yeshua, really. That the family did not believe who he was. Is not this just the son of Joseph? Joseph. Wow, there's a clue right there. If you go, and we're going to cover some of these other similarities later on tonight, but there's a clue that out of all the names of a step, of stepfather, God chose that Joseph should be called Joseph, for he would be the son of Joseph. They did not believe who he was. They did not believe that he was the Messiah, as we read in Luke, when he sat down in the seat of Moses, said, today these scriptures are, are fulfilled in your hearing, and they sought to kill him at that moment in time. They sought to throw him over that cliff, just as the brothers did. For see, when Joseph came to the brothers, he was going out to check on them. He's going out to find them, just as Yeshua was sent by the Ancient of Days to find the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the other tribes. He was sent to check on the tribes. He went forth and they saw him in the distance. And in Genesis 37 verses 18 and 19, we read that the brothers sought to kill him. And Judas, along the way, said, let's don't kill him, let's sell him. Hmm, that will come into play in just a moment. See, in Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, we read about how the leaders sought to kill him. But who was it that said, well, I'll sell him to you? It was Judas. If we look at the word Judas, he would have probably been from the tribe of Judah, who was, if we go back to Genesis, we just talked about it, it was Judah that said, let's kill him. No, let's sell him for a few pieces of silver. The parallels, when we continue in this thing, are absolutely awesome. Genesis 37, verse 23, what did they do? They took his robe and threw him into a pit. And in John chapter 19, 
verses 23 to 24, in verses 38 to 40, we see that Yeshua was nailed to a stake. His robe was taken from him. And after he died, he was thrown into a pit, was he not? But this is where we need to do some departure from the standard teachings of the day. For see, yes, he was, yes, Joseph was thrown in a cistern, in a pit. And he was brought out of that pit. And then we continue on with his life in Egypt, which we'll talk about. But many people, I think, have made a mistake in the interpretation of looking at this and saying that we can look at Joseph and his life, that he was put in a pit the same as Yeshua was was killed and put in a pit. Joseph was risen from that pit and then taken off into Egypt. Yeshua was taken out of that pit. And then the standard teaching of the day says, well, then we can continue to relate the things of Joseph's life in Egypt to Yeshua. That's not doctrinally correct. That's not good context of Scripture, see? If we're going to be true to the Scripture, we can look at all the things that happened prior to the pit, I believe, and we can relate those things to the life of Yeshua on this earth. But after the death and resurrection of Yeshua, after the, if you would, the death and resurrection of Joseph, at least the prophetic significance there, we cannot then take the life of Joseph after he came out of the pit and once again look at Yeshua's life. That doesn't make sense. So what can we look at? What is the context of this? I believe it is this, that we should take everything prior to the pit and relate that to the life, to the death of Yeshua. But after the pit, we should relate this to the body of Messiah. Does that make sense? We relate it to the body of Messiah. That which has happened after that resurrection, if you would, of Joseph, those things should be related to from the disciples and even on into this moment and until the coming, the second coming. We should be able to, to see prophetic pictures along the way. Well, let's see if we can do that. See, Joseph was taken to another land. The first thing that happened to Joseph, that when he came up out of there after he was sold, he was taken to another land and he was shown favor for a short period of time as he took over the house of Potiphar. Now we see in the life of the disciples, right after the resurrection of Yeshua, right after that first or that empowerment on Pentecost, because it wasn't the first one, it goes all the way back to Sinai, but after that empowerment of the early congregation, we see that they have favor. I mean, you look at Acts chapter 21, verse 20, it says, look how how many hundreds of thousands, myriads believe and are zealous for Torah. They were living an incredible life in that day, were they not? I mean, how many of us would have liked to live out Acts? That's pretty cool. You know, your shadow healing people? Not bad. People being raised from the dead? Their limbs, you get bit by a snake and you shake it off? Not bad stuff. That's what they were dealing with in that day. They were walking in favor. The same as Joseph was walking in favor For a short period of time. But that time was going to be very short-lived because the enemy was at work. 
He was at work because he was scared of a group of people that he has been scared of for 6,000 years now. A group of people who have faith in the, in the blood of Yeshua Messiah and are zealous, obedient to the Torah. See, when those early disciples were living out that life, when they were living by faith in Messiah, and they were also living by the Torah, we see the power of God upon the face of the earth, do we not? But when the Torah left... Turn with me to Second Thessalonians, a verse that I saw about six months ago. It's one of those that, when I saw it, I thought, wow, how did that get there? You ever done that? If you haven't done that, you haven't read your Bible. Now, what happens... I told a group this the other night. What happens is that in the middle of the night, when Deborah is sleeping as soundly as she said she was, that God sends His angels into your house. And they go through and change all your Bibles and add things to it. <laughs> so the next morning you wake up and you say, well, look what God did last night. He added something to my Bible. No, not really. It was always there. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, In verse 5 it says, Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is restraining, so that he may be revealed in his own time. Listen to this. For already this separating from Torah is at work secretly. Wow. But it will be secretly only until he who is restraining is out of the way. And then it goes on to talk about the pseudo-Messiah. First, second Thessalonians. Second Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, yeah. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, I was looking here, chapter 1 is very, very short. So, chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 5, key in on those words that Paul was saying to the Thessalonica church, already there is a work that is happening in secret, and that work is this, to separate you from obedience to Torah. And the enemy knew that when the separation of Torah was complete, that the power of God would no longer be resident within the disciples. See how important it is for us to understand Torah and come back to it? See, they lived that short time period that they were living by the Torah. And there was power that was being poured out. But the enemy was trying to separate them from from the Torah, which was their identity. Their identity was wrapped up in two things, not just one. Their identity was in the in Yeshua, the living Torah, but they were also living out the written Torah. And Satan tried and did take them away from that life. And when they did, when he did that, the power of God left. Now, can we see anything back into our history, what is called church history, that would maybe parallel this time? A time that I think is prophesied by Potiphar's wife. See, Joseph was doing pretty good until Potiphar's wife became a little bit jealous of him and wanted to put him in some situations he shouldn't be in. Potiphar's wife wanted to compromise his lifestyle, take him away from his lifestyle that he was to be living. So what did she do? She made this plan. She ripped, she brought him in. And we know that he fled, but when he fled, she grabbed his robe, his coat. And in doing so, she was stripping him of the rest of his identity. Up until this time, he had an identity as a Hebrew. But he had lost one robe already as outer garment. But now whatever robe he had, the rest of his identity as a Hebrew 
was stripped away from him. And we know that he was thrown into a pit. You may and may not have heard of a man named Marcion. Most of us have heard of Constantine. But very few have heard of a man named Marcion. And I believe that Marcion is a picture, is a prophetic picture of, or Marcion is the fulfillment of this prophetic picture in Potiphar's wife. Marcion was a man, he is said to be the first Gentile leader of the congregation in Jerusalem. We know the first one was Yaakov. And it is said that every single one, some have even estimated that there were 14 or 15 leaders who were all of Jewish descent up until the time that Marcion came in. And Marcion came at a time of anti-Semitism, in a time that people were turning against Torah and people were giving their lives for their belief of Torah. And Marcion came into this early congregation as the first Gentile A man who was very anti-Semitic. A man who was very much against Torah. And this man had some very strange doctrines. But he was able to take over because of the things that were going on in that day. See, Marcion believed that there were two gods. There was, first of all, the God of the Old Testament. He was a harsh, judgmental taskmaster. They were just waiting at any moment that you messed up in any way, shape, or form, and he was going to make you a little greasy spot and was really going to enjoy it. But then there was the God of the New Testament, which had been revealed in this Messiah, Yeshua. And the God of the New Testament was kind of the lovey-dovey God. He was the one that was full of grace and mercy and didn't really matter what you said or did or any of those things. He was going to love you anyway. And Marcion, with that kind of a doctrine, totally disregarded the complete Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. He disregarded them and said, that's of that other God. We don't want to have anything to do with that today. And as far as this New Testament, he didn't agree with much of that either. So he started highlighting his Bible with a black magic marker. And by the time he got finished with it, all he had was the writings of Paul and a little bit, a little bit of Luke. You know, they go into churches tomorrow and stand up and talk about Marcion and they say, oh, we'd never believe that. But you know, the ghost of Marcion's alive and well today all over this country and in other countries as well. Because people say that they serve one God, but they say, but God did a personality change. They treat it. They treat Him as two different gods. They treat this book as the Jew book and the new book. And that Jew book doesn't have anything to do with us. You start talking to them about Torah and what do they say? But Paul said. It's the first thing that happens. You say anything about Torah. I don't care what verse it is. And the first thing out of their mouth is this. But Paul said. Having no clue what Paul really said. But just spouting off what understanding that they have, which is based upon Marcion doctrine. Marcion was prophesied, I believe, in the life of Potiphar's wife. But see, it was not Potiphar's wife that put Joseph in the pit. It was Potiphar. And I believe that Potiphar 
was a shadow of a man named Constantine. And some of the writings say that Potiphar knew what had happened. He knew that he was doing wrong, but he did it anyway because he was scared, because he was he had fear of man, or in this case, fear of his wife. And he went ahead and threw Joseph into that pit, just the same as I see in council, ripping the early congregation totally and completely away from their Hebraic heritage, mixing the pagan religions of that day with what God has said in this book, forming what would now be lived out as a pseudo-pagan religion of Christianity. See, the Christian religion that is happening today on this earth is a pseudo-pagan religion following pagan principles and turning against the Word of God. But that's changing in our midst. But back to the story. Constantine finished the work of Marcion and through the early disciples, the early congregation into the pit. Now what happened with Joseph? As Joseph was placed in a pit, Joseph was thrown in a pit that was dark. Well, what happened after Constantine? We call that time the Dark Ages. It's prophesied. See, when you throw the Torah away, what you have is darkness. And Constantine threw the Torah away and threw the early congregation into darkness. And when we don't have a group of people that are living as lights, what do we have? We have darkness. See, the Dark Ages was prophesied in the life of Potiphar. Joseph sat in prison. He was favored by those who would receive him. Favored by those who would receive him. And over these years, there have been many who have received him. And the person of Yeshua has had favor, but has not been the preeminent person that he was, that he should be because his congregation was thrown into darkness. And in that time of the pit, we read about it in Genesis chapter 40. It tells us of two men who are in the pit with him. There's the cupbearer and the baker. Now, the cupbearer is in charge of what? Wine, right? Wine in Scripture talks of what? Blood, right? Blood is a synonym for faith. We come, we say you need to have faith in the blood of Yeshua to be redeemed, right? We have this, this at Passover. We have the cup. And we say that this represents the blood of Messiah and we're receiving Him by faith. Another man that's down there is the baker. A baker does what? He takes grain and he puts that grain together and he bakes bread. Bread in Scripture is Torah. Bread always speaks of Torah. Torah, we are to have obedience to Torah, are we not? So we have the cupbearer and the baker that are there with Joseph in the pit. Ever heard of a man named Martin Luther? Yeah, I thought you had. A man that was born in night, in, excuse me, in 18, excuse me, 1483. 1483. Do you know that he was eight years old in 1492 when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue? Eight. The number of new beginnings. And when he was eight years old, Christopher Columbus, who I believe was a Jew, who was leaving to find 
a homeland for the Jewish people until the nation of Israel would be established again. Martin Luther came on the scene just before what is called the Renaissance era, an era of knowledge, an era of truth. In fact, it was Martin Luther who was, you can read about his story, but on October 31st, 1517, when Luther was 33 years old, just happened to be 33, he nailed his thesis upon the door of the Wittenberg church and proclaimed, the just shall live by faith. Hmm. See, when he did that, when he nailed that thesis to the door, what did he do? He restored faith in the blood of Yeshua. Because up until that time, faith had been lost. It had become a a pagan religion of works. And Martin Luther took this book and started reading it. And he found those verses in the Old Testament, if you would, that say, the just shall live by faith. And he restored, when he tacked that thesis up on the, on the church door, he was restoring faith in the blood of Yeshua, our Messiah. But if you will look at the life of Martin Luther, you also read that over time, he rejected Torah, did he not? That is why, ladies and gentlemen, he was not affected with the Jewish people. See, he went to the Jewish people and he started to preach this gospel that he had just found. But his gospel was void of Torah. And every Jewish person knows that a gospel that is void of Torah, a Messiah that is void of Torah, is the wrong Messiah. So they rejected him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. And because of that, he turned vehemently opposed to the Jewish people and wrote some pretty interesting things. But what did Martin Luther do? See, he restored the blood and he rejected the obedience. Martin Luther restored the cupbearer and killed the baker. Prophesied. It's been there all along. For those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, it's been there all along that Martin Luther, the work that he did was prophesied in the life of Joseph. But eventually, Joseph comes forth. When the Pharaoh has a dream, a dream about the cows and the the wheat and all these things, you can read about that on your own. But Joseph comes forth and he is there to interpret this dream of the Pharaoh. And we know that he said to the Pharaoh, you're going to have in the land of Egypt seven years of abundance that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And the Pharaoh says, we need somebody of wisdom that is able to help us through this time. And they bring Joseph out of the pit and he is restored for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to prepare the world for what is about to happen. Now, if we read the story, we see that Joseph, his identity was changed. He was given new robes. He was dressed as an Egyptian and was given an Egyptian name. See, the body of Messiah doesn't look Jewish anymore. We've been stripped of our original identity. If you look at Christian television... You listen to Christian radio, you go to most Christian churches today, it does not look like they are following a Hebrew Messiah. But it looks like they're following some guy from Europe. A different Messiah. That's what it appears. But 
Messiah has been at work during this time. Well, let's consider, as i kind of finishing up here, let's consider this thing about the seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. Now, it has been taught through the years that this seven years of abundance will be seven years on earth when the stock market will go through the roof, when we will all have three and four cars, two houses, vacation homes, be jet-setting around the world, and all of us will be living the utmost of the American dream. Well, you know, I believe that God desires for us to prosper and be in health as our soul prospers, but I really don't think He's concerned about whether you're driving a Mercedes or a Volkswagen. That's just not something that keeps Him up at night. Because, see, those things are going to go away. So it's been told that this is going to be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine on the earth. And that's the time that, you know, nobody wants to be around for anyway. Well, if we will look at the Scripture and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we will come up with a totally different perspective about this. Because it is prophesied that there would be seven years of abundance of what? Grain. Grain is used to be is used to be brought together with other ingredients. It is then baked, and then that baking process we get what? Bread. I believe that this is showing us that there will be a seven year abundance of Torah. Wow, that's different. See, grain is the letters. Grain is the Hebrew letters. And when we put those letters together, we end up with bread of Torah. Living and written Torah. So I believe that this is telling us that there will be a seven year time period on this earth that there will be an abundance of Torah. And that time period will then be followed by another seven year time period which will be a famine of Torah. No one will be able to find it except those who have been smart enough to store it. See, when Joseph was making these plans, he took that abundance. He took that overabundance of grain in that day and he stored it away for a day that was coming. A day that there would be a famine. A day that God was planning for some specific purposes. I think that this is a challenge to us in this room who have been called heretics, weirdos, Judaizers, freaks, and that's just what you've been called today. You've been, by your friends. Thanks, Deborah. You've been called a cult. There's people out there that you're starting to live by the Word of God, so they're worried about you. I mean, this is happening, isn't it? Not just happening where I live. It's happening all over the place. But see, right here it tells us that there's a time period that's going to be upon this earth that there will be an abundance of Torah, and that will be followed by famine. An interesting Verse is in Genesis chapter 24, which is more toward the end of the story. And it talks about Benjamin and how Benjamin was given the goblet. And the goblet was placed in the pack as they were sent back to the family. Now, the book of Jasher, which I do not hold the book of Jasher up as inspired scripture, but scripture does refer to it a couple of times. And there is there are some interesting things in the book of Jasher. And one of the things, as you read through the life of Joseph in this book of Jasher, it says that Joseph actually took Benjamin to the side 
and told him who he was. And then he took the goblet and put it into Joseph's pack right there at the same place the money for the grain would have been. Now consider the similarities here. Consider the, the pictures that we have. There was a goblet which was used to hold what? Wine. Which speaks of faith in the blood of Yeshua. And that goblet was placed in the pack where the money for the grain was, which is speaking of Torah. The blood of faith and the obedience of Torah is coming back together in whose pack? Benjamin's. The smallest tribe. A remnant. A remnant. See, what's happening today is there's a remnant that's being called out. A remnant that's being given some very good information today. Because the Bible says in Amos, God says, I will do nothing except I reveal it to my servants first. His servants are this remnant. This remnant that is being prepared for this time period that is coming on the earth, or may already be. I am not setting dates. Hear me? I'm not setting dates. Anybody asleep? Let me say it one more time. I'm not setting dates. Don't don't tell anybody that I'm setting dates, please, because I don't do that. Because the Bible says we're not going to know the date, but those that are a little smarter than the average bear are going to know the seasons that we're in. So could it be that we're entering into, or are we in a season that was prophesied as far back as the life of Joseph in Egypt? See, in 2000, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, Ariel Sharon walked up on the Temple Mount. And it is reported that he read the complete chapter of Ezekiel 37 in Hebrew. The vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. The two sticks coming together as one. What do those two sticks represent? It represents the family coming back together, does it not? He read those. And all the way from Jewish rabbis to Christian commentators, it is said that something happened in the year 2000. Something has changed on the earth. Something's different than it was. Let me just float this to you. And if it sinks, for you that's okay. If it floats, fish it. Could it be possible that in 2000, On Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, that the seven-year time period began of abundance of Torah. You know, as I've floated this around the country, I get a lot of people that start to nod their heads. How many of you could say that as you read the Scriptures today, that it's jumping out at you more than it ever has in the past? You're starting to see it. starting to see some things that you've never seen before. Could it be that we are living in that time frame right now which would end in 2007. That time frame in which those of us that are called the occult, heretics, and all these other things, we would have been smart enough, wise enough, because of the Spirit of God calling us to store up the Torah in our lives. For a time in which those who today turn their back on Torah would be placed in a situation where they need it for their very lives. And would then have to come to us heretics and occult and all these things that they call us and say, you know, maybe you were right. I sure need something in my life. It's awful dry. Would you tell me about that? Would you explain to me about this thing that you've been trying to tell me about through the years? And those who have been wise enough to store Torah 
would have it within them so that it would be able to be brought forth. See, I know something about computers a little bit. One thing that you learn, first of all, is you cannot get out of a computer what you haven't put in. And our life is kind of the same, you know. You can't take out of our life what you have not put in. This is why this song that Steve started with, The Spirit and Truth, yes, we can live by the Spirit and be led astray terribly if we don't know truth. Over a year ago, I I write a Torah commentary every week that goes out via email. And a little over a year ago, I put on that email, based on a scripture in Leviticus, that says a king is to write a copy of the Torah in their own handwriting. Just kind of put that out, that maybe we as royalty, because of Yeshua, should be in a place today that we should be writing the Torah also. And the first thing that happened is my wife came up to my office and said, you going to do it? I knew what she was talking about, but I was trying to be a little bit coy. I said, do what? She says, you going to write this? You going to do this? Well, you know, if I don't do what I tell you to do, I'm a hypocrite. So Kathy went to the store and she bought some notebooks, pads, and some pens. And a little over a year, about a year ago, we started writing the Torah in our own handwriting. And you know, today I can tell you that all the way from a teenager in 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 uh, Seattle, Washington, to a young adult in Brussels, Belgium, to a Messianic leader in Columbia, South Carolina. There are people that are writing the Torah in their own handwriting. There's one on the back row. To a couple, a family up in Canada. They homeschool their children who are ages 8, 10, and 5. And she wrote me not too long ago and said, I just wanted to let you know that as we homeschool our children, the five-year-old is a little bit young, but for the eight-year-old and the ten-year-old, part of their curriculum in homeschool is to write the Torah every single day. Wow. How many of you would have loved to have been raised by those parents? But you know, they're writing the Torah in their own handwriting. Me and Kathy are doing the same. We're behind. <laughs> I'll be very honest with you and tell you, I'm behind. i got to get caught back up somehow. But see, I figure that by 2007, I want to have it done. See, in Nazi Germany, they were burning the Bibles. Well, that could never happen in America. But you had out of the sand, ostrich. See, when we become, when our, when our mascot is the ostrich, it gives a very interesting target for the devil. You'll think about that one later. See, we need to be people that know what day we're living in. And when you write the Torah in your own handwriting, something happens. I don't know how many people have told me, I've read it and read it and read it, but Mike, I just found this. They call me on the cell phone. You won't believe what God just put in the Bible. Why? Because we're all used to skimming over it. But when you start to write it, you can't skim over the words. Even the begats. Oy vey. But God put them there for a reason and now they're in your heart because see, when we sit down and write the Torah, you know what my prayer is? God, as I write it on this page, would you by your Spirit write it on my heart, which is its rightful place. But as I'm putting it in there, I'm not remembering it all, but the Spirit of God can bring it forth because He's already placed it there. Could it be that we are living in that time? Could it be that we're living in that seven-year time period in which there is an abundance of Torah which will then be followed by seven years of famine? I cannot tell you for sure that that is the time that we are living in, but I can tell you this, I'm willing to take a chance of the possibilities. For could it be that there would be a day
They could come into your home and take your Bibles. But you know, in my office is now a couple of pads of paper. And with my chicken scratch handwriting, you can't read it. Could it be that they could come in and take our Bibles? But maybe that little section right there of pads of paper would still be there. And I'd still have a copy. What if I'm wrong? What if I just write it out and I'm wrong about the dates and about the whole thing? I don't think I've done anything bad. What if Yeshua comes in the midst of that? What a better thing to get caught doing. And what if He doesn't come for 20 or 30 years or something like that? Can you think of a better gift to give your child on their wedding day? This is what was important to Dad. This is what was important to your mother. Make sure this doesn't depart from you. See, the prophetic pictures line up of Messiah, son of Joseph. From Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, to him being put in the pit, all of those things. Marcion. Understand why we have the attitudes we do today toward Torah? It goes back to Marcion. It goes to Constantine. It goes to the Dark Ages. But there is a group of people today, I believe the remnant, the Benjamins, who are being raised up in this day to take faith in Yeshua, to take obedience to the Torah, and to bring them back together as one. For when those people are alive, a people that Revelation talks about must be alive in the last days, when that group of people comes back together and is raised up, that is a group of people that also walk in power. For it's happened throughout the centuries, I believe, will happen once again. It is inevitable for us to understand the message of Messiah, son of Joseph, and Messiah, son of David, if we are going to be able to live out in wisdom the days that we have today. So now that we've looked at Messiah, son of Joseph, what will it look like, Messiah, son of David? That's what we'll discuss in the next lesson. Stay tuned to Solace Radio.